I just realized I forgot to eat my breakfast this morning. It's a good thing we'll be feasting together on the word of God because man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's why you're here. You're here again, as you have been every week for now 12 weeks. And it's time again for another wonderful, satisfying, satiating episode of Twice the Lutheran. I am still your host because you haven't fired me yet. It's Pastor Wells with two L's because I'm twice the Lutheran. That's why you're here. Not only have you not fired me, I owe you a gigantic thank you to a handful of you who have so graciously, graciously sacrificed some of your dollars to support this work. Indeed, I am most happy to announce to you we have accomplished our first financial goal, yes, You have guaranteed, for better or worse, that twice the Lutheran will be here well into the future. The podcast is funded for another year of operation. And it will be time to set our sights together on growing now the listener base from the sure footing that you have provided In fact, to that end, I am excited to announce to you a new initiative here on this podcast, something a lot of podcasters do, but I'm not really a podcaster. I'm just a pastor pretending to be a podcaster, but following in the footsteps of real podcasters, I'm going to chase down some interviews for us. My hope is that in the coming year, you will hear the golden vocal cords of not just myself, but other Lutheran pastors. Now, they're Wells Lutheran pastors, but they don't have the distinction of having two L's in their name, not like me. We can't all be twice the Lutheran. That's my goal. If you would like to support that goal, maybe even we could go so far as to give a little honorarium, a little thank you gift to those who I am able to convince to join on the podcast. You can still send in your gifts. Just email me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Interestingly, most of you have preferred to give either via cash or check or Venmo or something like that. I'm working on getting that Venmo set up. For now, I'm on PayPal, podcast at twicethelutheran.org there on PayPal. Thank you again for anything that you are able to give. One final announcement before we dive back into our catechism At the end of this podcast, we will say an extended farewell. But don't worry, don't worry, just for one extra week. As we close in on Thanksgiving, we will take a break. We will let the interwebs rest, for better or worse, from their glorious labor of carrying from my desktop to your eardrums the catechism. Don't worry, we'll be back again for a couple episodes before Christmas. During your Thanksgiving holiday, as you're meeting with your family, here's one mission for you. If you can do this, you will have succeeded. Share the podcast. Share this podcast with those especially in your family who you think could benefit from this content, uh, content, those maybe even who have been confirmed Lutherans and need a review, maybe even those who are not even Christian and could join us here. Would love to have them share the podcast. It's a simple way to share the gospel with your family. Now it's time for us to embark again on our assignment back into 
the Catechism. We have been reviewing the Ten Commandments. We're all the way up to the Fifth Commandment. I know, uh, 12 episodes, we've made it 75 or so pages, five commandments deep. Here's the Fifth Commandment, if you've forgotten. You shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. We made the observation on the last episode, and if you haven't heard it yet, go back and and give it a listen. In fact, there's 10 or 11 episodes there for you to catch up on. We made the observation in the last episode that in a world that devalues God's word, you most likely will see a parallel devaluing of the gift of life. And indeed, if you look at the world today, you would probably agree with me that that's exactly what we're seeing. I saw a video over the weekend of an older gentleman in Panama. The road he was traveling on was stopped by climate protesters. We've seen that around. And what did this guy do? Casually pulls out a gun and shoots two of them. Both of them dead, I believe I got that right. Both of them dead now. And just kind of goes about his business. Now, he was arrested. The police did did catch him. But I couldn't help but see in the video just this kind of casual nature. Now, I get it. I get it. You might disagree with the protesters who are blocking the road. I get it. These things are frustrating. I get it. These things are even illegal. But whose job is it to enforce the law? That's right. The law. The law's job to enforce the law. That is the law officers, the court systems, etc., so really, you're, you're seeing two things happen here. Number one, as laws go unenforced, even the Bible recognizes you are, you are giving the risk that others will step in and enforce the law who have not been called to do so, such as vigil antes or guys like this gentleman who just pulls out a gun and deals with it. Not good, not good. But you'll also see... Sort of this casual disregard. I mean, he he pulls the trigger as if he's swatting two flies. Not good. A reminder, enforce the law if that's what you have been called and elected to do. Which gives us a segue into where we left off in the catechism on page 76. The catechism asks us this question then. Who alone has the right to end a person's life. Psalm 31.15 says, My times are in God's hand. And then it goes on, Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who pursue me. So our times are in God's hands. He's the one that directs the days of our lives, and he's the one who decides when our lives end. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, Now see that I, only I, am he, and there is not a God comparable to me. This is the true God speaking. And then here's what he says, I put to death, and I make alive. God reserves for himself the ability and the right to end a person's life. It is God's decision. That's why, in fact, breaking the fifth commandment is almost in every case, not even almost, well, let's say that. Let's say almost in every case is a breaking of the first commandment. To kill someone is to declare yourself to be God. To murder someone, and we have to make that distinction, by the way. I shouldn't be so lazy. There is a distinction between killing and murdering, right? To murder someone is to declare yourself to be God, to grab for yourself that which God has reserved for himself. In this regard, it's closely related to the Sixth Commandment, where God there in the Sixth Commandment reserves for himself the right to end one other thing, marriage. 
it, God reserves that right for himself to end your marriage. And how does he end your marriage? Through death. So to step in on the fifth commandment to murder someone is to step in on the first commandment to declare yourself to be God, to do by yourself what God says only he has the right to do. Now you may be thinking, well, Pastor Wells, is that really absolute? Is that completely objective or is that subjective? What about the death penalty? What about self-defense? What is the difference between killing? and murdering? We don't want to answer that question with opinions, do we? We don't even want to answer that question first and foremost with what the court system says is illegal or illegal. The way twice the Lutherans answer such questions is by going back to God's word. What does God say? Over and above what man says. What does God say about such things? Romans 13, 4. You remember this passage because we used this passage when we were talking in regards to the fourth commandment. Here's what it says. He, that is the government, he is God's servant for your benefit. So remember in the fourth commandment we said, God's the one who has established the government. God's the one who gives governments their authority. And here's again what it says in Romans 13, 4. The rest of it goes like this. But if you do wrong, meaning if you're a criminal, then be afraid because he does not carry the sword without reason. He is God's servant, a punisher to bring wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, of course, our government doesn't carry swords anymore. In the context of what Romans was written, of course, police officers, soldiers who enforced the law had swords. But it's kind of a stand-in for whatever tool the government is using to carry out what the second uh, second part of this passage says, to punish. He is God's servant, a punisher, to bring wrath on the wrongdoer. So does the government have the right to end a person's life? Yes and no. Who has the right alone? God does. So the question is, does God delegate that right? Yes, he does. Again, back in the Catechism, page 76, God alone has the right to end a person's life, but... He delegates that right also to his representatives in the government. A person serving under the authority of the government as God's representative, a government official, a soldier, or a police officer, may carry out capital punishment, take life in a war, or take life in order to protect the lives of others. Remember that we can look at all the catechism, I'm sorry, all the commandments rather, through the lens of how is God blessing us? What gift is he giving? What, uh, what thing is he protecting? In this, cat- in this commandment, the fifth commandment, God is protecting the gift of life. And the Bible recognizes that sometimes Somebody who has life is using their life to take the lives of others. Murderers, criminals, robbers. They are a threat to life, even a threat to peace and order, which God wants us to live in. And so, God has directed, uh, delegated, that is, his authority to take a life to the government. Now, does... Taking a life, is it, is it warranted in just absolutely every case? A man robs a jewelry store, so, you know, put him on death row. Not, no, no. That's not what we're saying, not in every case. Let the punishment fit the crime still sort of applies here. And so the government has varying degrees of punishments they can, they can carry out, right? They can give you a fine or a fee. They can lock you up sort of take away your your freedom or your life in the sense of 
putting you putting you in jail so you don't have a regular life, if you will. But they do have the authority all the way up to death, to put somebody to death, to execute them, to arrange the meeting, if you will, between the murderer and God. Now, what about cases in self-defense? Now, I don't think that we should get so excited here. I know that especially here in the United States, you know, we we love that conversation. Uh, We love our guns. But we shouldn't be so excited to talk about taking a life and do I have the right to take a life. The right frame is to say, do I have the right to defend life? And even... The government recognizes that, yes, you do have the right to defend your life and the lives of others, including up to taking the life of someone else who is threatening to take your life. Pray God it never comes to that. Pray God he sends his angels to preserve you from such things. But yes, even there, in the cases of self-defense, there is a difference between murder and killing Even our government recognizes that these are in cases of self-defense. Now, what about about Christ saying, turn the other cheek if someone comes after you, hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Doesn't that forbid self-defense? No. No, that's not what's in context with that passage of turning the other cheek. In that passage, we're talking about Somebody sort of teasing you or making fun of you, saying naughty things about you. In that case, he's more talking about uh, in terms of taking revenge. And this is in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Here's what it says, Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. So let's first understand that passage. This is not a passage on revenge. This is not saying if someone hits you, hit them back. If someone took your eye, take theirs. If they took your tooth, take theirs. That's not what that passage is saying. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is just another way of saying let the punishment fit the crime. We don't take, you know, an eye for uh, a stubbed pinky toe or something like that, right? Let the punishment fit the crime. Then in verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your shirt unjustly, give him your coat too. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What is Jesus saying in that section? He's warning us away from revenge which we'll see here in a minute, is forbidden in the fifth commandment. He's not forbidding self-defense. That's not it. He's not even saying that just let, let everyone rob you blind. What he's saying is there are times when we maybe forego what otherwise we are legally entitled to. What he's forbidding here is any sense of revenge and maybe not even just in a physical, uh, you know, revenge cases, but like financial and court. Like, don't let revenge be your motivating factor in what you do. Don't let getting even with somebody dominate your life because that's what it will do. It will embitter you. It will take up all your time. It will take up all your attention. If you think that it's your job to right the scales, to bring justice back to your life or the lives of others, let God worry about that. Live at peace, brother. Live at peace, sister. Even and especially if you've been wronged, let God worry about it. Back in the catechism then, question 62 On page 76, here's what it says. The explanation to this commandment shows that God means to protect our bodies as well as our lives. Because why? Your body is important to God. (laughs) You want me to prove it? He will resurrect it someday. Yeah. 
there is this old sort of Gnostic, and by Gnostic I mean this this group that kind of uh, has like these uh, secret knowledge or claims to have secret knowledge. Part of this Gnostic idea that there was a difference between the physical and the spiritual, like the spiritual was better than the physical or in some sense higher. Now that you can push that too far. To the point where some were convinced, well, whatever, my body's just an earthly tent, I get rid of it anyways. Do you? What happens in the resurrection? Don't you get that body back? In fact, who gave you your body? Didn't God do that? So do you think that God has some say in how you use your body? This starts to get very controversial in 2023, doesn't it? What's the slogan you've heard over and over again in our day and age? My body, my choice. Which is the slogan used quite often to defend abortion, which is murder. We'll get into that here in this catechism. I'll show you that God says so, not just Pastor Wells, not just Christians and Lutherans, but God himself calls it that. But back to that slogan, my body, my choice. Is it? Is it your body? Who created it? Who has a say in how it's used? God does. He gave you your body and your life. And he loves it so much that he protects it with this commandment, your body and your life. He loves your body and your life so much that he's going to give you both back for eternity, your body and your life. That's what happens in the resurrection. Back in the Catechism, the explanation helps us see that there are many ways that people sin in breaking this commandment. In order to protect our bodies and lives, what does God forbid with the fifth commandment? The first one is really easy. The first thing God forbids with this commandment is really easy. The commandment says, you shall not murder. So what's the first and most obvious thing God forbids in this commandment? You guessed it. Golly, you are smart. Murder. He forbids murder. Genesis 9, 5, and 6, I will hold each animal and each person responsible for your lifeblood. Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We reviewed that passage in the last commandment. That's the passage that uh, establishes the government. If you want to hear more about how that's true from that passage, go back and listen to that episode. might have been two episodes ago. So God forbids murder. But let's go just a little deeper. 2 Samuel 11. Here's another parenthetical statement. Remember, this one's giving us a summary of what happens in uh, 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 17. So in that group of verses, we hear this summary. David arranged things so that Uriah would be killed in a battle. David was responsible for Uriah's death. God specifically holds David responsible for having killed Uriah. Why is that uh, so shocking? Well, it's because David didn't technically kill Uriah. It wasn't like the sword was in David's hand and David himself plunged it through Uriah's gut. But David did arrange the circumstances to intentionally have Uriah killed. What's God teaching us? You can't fool him. You can't fool God. Anybody making arrangements let's say, hiring an assassin or something like that. You can't say, if you hired an assassin and the assassin carries out the hit, you can't say, oh, I I didn't do it. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. God recognizes that as a truth. Even the government will recognize that as a truth, okay? So what's forbidden in this commandment? God forbids that we take another person's life unless we're serving as God's representative in the government. Again, maybe that can be a little bit nuanced, but it's good enough. It's good enough that we paint with that very broad brush. Don't kill anybody unless you're in the government specifically charged to do that and are doing so in a just way and for a just reason. What else does God forbid? 
Here's a big one. Psalm 139.13, you created my inner organs. You wove me together in my mother's womb. Of course, we're talking about not just infants. I hate the word fetus because it, it's just so it's so medical. It's so like objectifying sounding. That is a baby in utero in the womb, in mama's womb. And the Bible is willing to say that. It's willing not, not just to say that that's a baby, but it assigns very high, high value to that baby. You wove me together in my mother's womb. That is very different than calling something a clump of cells, right, as we, uh, as we often hear. That is not the way God speaks about it in the Bible. He says very intentionally, very carefully, very purposefully, God knits together, weaves together. That's the language here. Wove me together in my mother's womb. That is high value. Even on a even on a baby's life in utero. Now, when God's people lived under his theocracy in the Old Testament, God laid out laws. We talked about this in a, a lot of episodes ago, a lot of weeks ago. God, when he wrote down laws, he wrote down not just ceremonial laws for church. He wrote down uh, and not just moral laws for how we're to conduct ourselves. He did write down civil laws how to regulate life in society. Here's one of the laws that God made sure was on the books under the theocracy, Exodus 21. If men are fighting and they injure a pregnant woman, if any harm follows, then you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Again, let the punishment fit the crime. If men are fighting, and they shouldn't be doing that, and they injure a a pregnant woman, heaven forbid, and the baby in her womb takes on damage of some sort from that fight, then compensate appropriately, even up to putting someone to death for murder. Back in the catechism, God forbids taking the life of the unborn. Abortion is murder because our lives are in God's hands, deliberately causing the death of someone who is in misery because of illness or injury is also murder. That's a loaded statement, too, in 2023. You often hear people talking about like this death with dignity and euthanasia stuff. I think you can you can have a physician's assisted suicide in a lot of cases. We'll talk about that coming up, suicide. But in this case, we're talking about euthanasia. The killing of somebody who is suffering. Again, God is recognizing the high value, the high premium on all life. Even those who are injured, even those who are what we would traditionally call disabled, that's a life God has given. And that's a life that God has given value to. We honor God when we honor those lives. Now, God specifically in these cases is calling abortion murder. It's a life in that mother, and and we all know it. That's a life in the mother. Now, a lot of people are quick, again, to try and come up with all sorts of exceptions, all sorts of reasons that that a a mother should be able to abort her, her unborn child. Be careful there in those debates. And by be careful, I mean don't do it. Don't choose abortion. Now, a lot of people, that like the, the traditional argument, right? Well, what about in cases of, of rape or incest? How do you answer that? How do you answer that? Shouldn't, shouldn't the mother 
the the pregnant woman. Let's say she got pregnant via a rape by a rape, and now uh, the the pregnancy is just this constant reminder to her about what has happened to her, and so it's sort of re-traumatizing her to be pregnant. Let me attack this first from a logical standpoint. Logically, if that's true, is the solution then to kill the baby? Is that the solution? That's how, that's how the argument is framed. You can make her feel better by killing the baby. Is that true? Or maybe do you help her by first getting some counseling? Don't, don't deny what's happened to that poor woman is beyond horrible. Don't downplay that. I hear a lot of people doing that. Don't, don't, don't downplay that. Let it stand as horrible. But then ask yourself to help her, to help her be better, feel better in life. Is the solution killing the baby? Or is there a chance that that might actually make things worse? I would submit to you the latter that there's a chance that makes things worse. Are you willing to admit that God can bring about wonderful good from terrible circumstances? Can God do that? Can God take what is the worst thing that's ever happened to you in life and work it so that blessing comes out of it? Sure he can. Do you trust him to do so? Could it be that even under those terrible circumstances, God is working to bring a wonderful blessing out of it, a child. It could be, huh? It could be. Now, the other, the other kind of logical fallacy here, if you are walking down the street with your best friend and someone on the street comes up and punches you right in the eyeball, and you get so ticked off and, and you're so injured and so hurt by that that you now have the right to turn and punch your friend in his eyeball. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, we don't punish a third party for the crimes of the first or second party, do we? Who should be punished in that scenario? You're walking down the street with your friend and a criminal comes and punches you in the eyeball. Who should be punished in that instance? Wouldn't it be the criminal? You don't take out your justice on your innocent friend. But isn't that what we're doing in in, in abortion? In those cases of rape or incest, who did the wrong here? The violator, the, the person, the offender, the criminal. So who should pay the price? The baby? Well, that doesn't make sense. And now look at it again through the lens of Christ. Can God work out good from what is otherwise terrible evil? Yes, he can. And finally, what is is that baby in mama's womb? That is a soul. A soul that has the opportunity now to enjoy a time of grace. A time to be born in the world. A time to find Jesus Christ through word and sacrament. A time to become a recipient of all of heaven's promises. And so you could see when God protects that life, when God puts value on that life, you can begin to see the ultimate blessing he can work out of the most horrible tragedies that a child could be conceived in despicable circumstances and yet become an heir of heaven. So why would we ever take the alternative view that says a child is conceived in terrible circumstances and then is murdered, their life cut short? Why do that? Why do that? Why not see the ultimate good come, come true? You bring that child to baptism. You bring that child to Christ. And now that child and his mother and her mother 
become heirs of salvation through word and sacrament. Isn't that the ultimate good? Isn't that the ultimate goal? See how good it is when we honor life, how good it is when we protect life? Because in honoring and protecting life on the basis of the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, we, re- we become recipients of heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, how about some more? What else does God protect in this commandment? Leviticus 19.16 says, again, this is under the theocracy. Here's another law from God. You shall not go around spreading slander among your people. You shall not testify falsely against your neighbor in a capital case. I am the Lord. And one more passage, again, another parenthetical, another summary, parenthetical statement from Exodus twenty-one twenty-nine. If a farmer knew that his bull was dangerous but did nothing to protect others, he would be responsible if the bull killed someone. So what is God forbidding here in this commandment? And according to those passages, God forbids that we cause the death of another person by deliberate carelessness. Yes, even if you accidentally kill someone, you can be tried as a murderer. Let me give you an example. Drunk driving. I mean, that really is kind of the highest example, right, of carelessness and selfishness that could end up taking and has and has, has taken the life of many people. Someone gets loaded on whiskey and jumps behind the wheel, and they kill someone or multiple someones. Is that person not a murderer? Of course they are. They had an obligation to protect life by not being stupid. God even recognizes that in the case of this farmer who knows his bull is dangerous and does nothing to protect others. Tie up the bull. Kill the bull. Don't let that bull take someone else's life. And in that first case, you shall not testify falsely against your neighbor in a capital case. Don't testify falsely against your neighbor ever, but certainly not in a capital case. Because if you're lying... And your lie ends up costing someone their life, you are a murderer. Pressing on a little bit more, Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Catechism makes this statement, God forbids us to seek revenge when we have been wronged. That's not to say that you're not owed justice. That's not what we're saying. What God is saying is you do not have the right to seek your version of justice in revenge. Let God worry about it. Do you trust him? Do you trust him to take revenge in his name and on his time? Then let him. Let's press on even further. Proverbs 23, 20 through 31, 33. Do not be among those who drink too much wine or those who eat too much meat. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Later it bites like a snake and it strikes like a venomous viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will say senseless things. What does God forbid in this commandment? God forbids that we harm our bodies by eating and drinking too much or by abusing alcohol or drugs. Boy, that's a big one. That's a big one in 2023 because it gets to the heart of our excesses. When is the last time, if you're a churchgoer, when's the last time you ever heard a sermon on gluttony? I bet never. Huh? I don't think I've ever preached one. Now, that's not to say if you're overweight, it's not to say that being overweight or obese is a sin. There's a lot of reasons that can cause that. 
But being a glutton and overeating, yes, that is a sin. Yep. So the fifth commandment has something to say about your relationship to food. Now be careful, people. Please be ever so careful. In the 21st century, we put such an overemphasis on physical fitness as if I could just tackle my physical fitness and then everything else in my life will fall into place. I've seen sort of these humorous uh, pe- people making fun of, uh, what's that guy who was in the Marine Special Forces? Uh, David Goggins, I think is his name. And what's his message? Don't be lazy. Get out and work. Get out and run. And so people kind of teasing that and being like, well, my life is falling apart. But then I just started running, and I never stopped running, and then everything fell into place. Everything got better. Like as if physical fitness is just some magical cure-all pill. That if you can just discipline your body and get into physical shape, then then everything then everything is fixed. Then everything's fine. Now, don't press that too far. Of course, physical fitness is important. Even the Apostle Paul said so. It's of some benefit. And the fifth commandment does say, "Be careful what you're putting into your body in, in terms of food and drink, and even how you're taking care of your body, which is important to God. Get some exercise. Get some sleep." But how much of our focus on diet and exercise is all about me, all about vanity, all about look at me, and less about what level of physical fitness helps me serve Christ and my family better? Why is it important for me to to find my way to the gym a couple times a week? Because I'm a better pastor. I have more energy to serve God's people. That's why. Why is it important for my family to focus carefully on eating the right food at the right time? Now, again, don't, don't get carried away being perfect. I don't want you to think we're over at Pastor Wells' house measuring out every gram and ounce of everything we eat. No, there's a balance there, isn't there? Food and your relationship to food needs to be healthy for your body and healthy for your mind. Pay attention to it. Yes, pay attention to it. But don't obsess about it. The same with your drinking. Yes, pay attention to your drinking, but don't don't obsess about it. If you're spending all your time wondering, do I drink too much? The answer probably is yes. (laughs) If you're wondering, do I drink too much? The answer probably is yes. So cut back. Don't give food and drink such a a stranglehold over your life so that that's all you're thinking about and that's all you're obsessing about. Yes, pay attention to it. No, don't obsess about it. And, And third, be realistic with yourself. If you have an addiction to food, you, you, need to, you need to address that. If you have an addiction to alcohol or any other substances, you, you need to address that. And if you truly, if it's truly an addiction, then you're probably not going to be able to conquer that on your own. You're going to need to get help. You're going to need to join uh, an Overeaters Anonymous or something like that, an Alcoholics Anonymous. I have counseled people in those positions, and I have heard them repeatedly promise, I've got it, Pastor, I got it, no problem, Uh, this time is different. You know what I say to them? No, it's not. And no, you don't. You need the support of your Christian community, your brothers and sisters. If you haven't opened up to them about what's going on, you're not going to be able to conquer it by yourself. And second of all, you need heavy, heavy doses of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Because if you are battling an addiction, if you've ever battled an addiction, then you know it's a roller coaster ride. Sometimes victory, sometimes defeat. And if you don't have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the strength of Jesus Christ, you will lose the battle. Mark my words, you'll lose the battle. And that only scratches the surface on eating and drinking. This commandment is also talking about alcohol and drugs. I mean, you want to talk about a medicated society. My goodness! I went to the dentist uh, some years back when I was first getting to know my dentist. And uh, the hygienist asked, you know, what, what medications do you take? What prescriptions do you take? I said, none. 
And I and her jaw hit the floor, and I thought, my goodness, are we at such a point in society when it's astonishing that a 30-something-year-old doesn't have a prescription medication? I guess so. My friends, be careful. Be so careful with medications. And at all costs, avoid drugs. Make sure you need to take it if it's being prescribed to you. If at all possible, find a way to live without it. Change your diet. Change your exercise. Change your habits. Why? Because you don't want anything to have a stranglehold over you. Now, again, I want to be careful. You have to temper all of that. I'm not a doctor, okay? Don't take any of this as medical advice. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a dietitian. I'm not a kinesiologist. Yes, I know that word. It's a big word. That's your $10 word for the day, kinesiology. Man, am I going to feel like an idiot if I'm using that word wrong. (laughs) I'm not a chiropractor. I'm not any of those things. I'm a simple theologian that's bringing you the word of God, and God in his word is saying, don't drink too much wine. Don't eat too much meat. Doesn't say don't drink any wine. Says don't drink too much. Doesn't say don't eat any meat. Says don't eat too much. Don't give anything the addictive stranglehold over your life. Not to food, not to drink, not to drugs. It is forbidden in the fifth commandment. Now we're going to have to close out with uh, this passage here. Or these passages, I'll say it that way. Psalm thirty-one, fifteen. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who pursue me. And First Samuel 31, as well as Matthew 27, I'm on page 77 in the Catechism if you're following along. Those passages show us that Saul and Judas both commit suicide. So what does God forbid in this commandment? He forbids suicide. Who gets to decide when your life will end? Not you. Now you may you may be thinking, but somebody might be might be suffering in this world and it's just better for them to leave. I might even agree with you on that. I might say yes, it is better for us all to be gone and be in heaven. But do we have God's permission to do that? No. God decides when our lives end. So in some instances, yes, suicide can be a high sin because taking your own life is again stepping into the first commandment, doing to yourself what God himself has reserved. Now I will also say this. In the 21st century, we understand now more about mental sickness, mental health issues than we ever did in the past. It used to be, not in my day, I don't remember the day, but they say, whoever they are, they say it used to be suicide was immediate condemnation. Suicide meant absolutely 100% no chance for you ever entering through the gates of heaven. We ought not speak so hard and fast in that way. If you have pneumonia and you die from pneumonia, do you go straight to hell? (laughs) Of course not. We would say, no, of course not. You don't go straight to hell for for dying of a sickness or an illness or a disease. Of course not. So can the same be said about mental health issues? If someone is having mental health struggles and they give in to the temptation seeking to find relief from, let's say, let's say crushing depression or whatever it is, they seek to find relief from that by suicide. Is it 100% every time straight to hell? Not every time. How do you get to heaven? Through faith. In Jesus Christ. How do you get to heaven? By finding your sins all forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for you, the very Son of God, who in giving his life up, rescued yours. 
is it possible that a Christian who trusts in Jesus Christ can have mental health disorders and sicknesses? Not just possible, but common. Common. And is it possible that in a severe episode of anxiety or depression, a person is falls to the temptation to take their own life? Not only possible, it happens. So much of these things remain in the hands of God, don't they? So much of the time we, we, we really have to hold things in tension and say, this person professed to be a believer in Christ and then took their own life. What can we say of that? We can hold it before God and say, Ah, oh, Lord Jesus, this world and this life, they're so backwards and so twisted. Ah, Lord Jesus, you know how we suffer here. You've given us the promise. Lord Jesus, we leave this person in your hands. If the person was a baptized believer in Christ, if the person died in faith, they're in heaven. Now, who gets to say whether they died in faith or not? Well, ultimately, God's the authority of that. When it comes to the issue of Suicide. We have to be ever so careful, ever so careful. We cannot say, and we dare not say, that in every situation, the soul that committed suicide was bound for hell, never to enter the gates of heaven. Self-murder is not excused there. We shouldn't thereby take a light view of suicide, but we should understand that some people, yes, they are afflicted in heart and mind in ways that we might struggle to understand and yet still have faith in Jesus Christ. If you know somebody who has suicidal thoughts or tendencies, love them enough to talk to them. Love them enough to be open with them. Love them enough to listen. And in all things, love them enough to point them back to Jesus Christ. Show them on the cross the high value and the high premium God has put on our lives. Show them on the cross the forgiveness of every single sin, the forgiveness and freedom from every temptation. But don't at the same time expect that they are thereby cured. The gospel isn't just a happy pill that makes you feel better. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes I feel pretty good when I have the gospel. But it doesn't make my life a bed of roses. And that's okay. Because I know I have that bed of roses waiting for me in the glories of heaven. Love each other enough to have the conversations that matter. Because those conversations can quite literally save a life. If not just for time, for sure for eternity, point them to Jesus Christ. Let's close with one last section here. So we don't have to come back and talk about what God forbids in the fifth commandment. Let's, let's wrap up that section here. A couple more passages. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. That's 1 John 3.15. And how about this one, Matthew 5.21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, will have to answer to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. What is God forbidding here? God forbids hatred and other cruel thoughts and words against others. You might not have killed them with your hands and ended their life on earth, but you killed them in your mind. You might not have stabbed them through the heart with a sword, but you stabbed them through the heart with your words. That's 
murder too. Because finally, what does a life consist of? What does a person consist of? Is it really just, you know, two legs, two arms, and a body? Not in every case, right? And certainly that's not the totality of life. But what has God put into a person? Intellect, will, emotion. Those all make up a person too. So in verbally abusing somebody, you are murdering them. When you are unfairly and unjustly angry at somebody, you are murdering them. We had to have that conversation in my household when the competition for football was getting too severe and the smack talk was getting a little bit too personal. To remind even children, you are killing them with your words. Is that God-pleasing? Does that honor God? No. So you men, if you are married and have a family, the way you speak to your wife and your children is part and parcel of your care with them. It's not enough. It is not enough that you just sign the check that pays the grocery bill. That's not enough. Because your children and your wife, they are more than just a tummy to fill. They are people. They have psychological, emotional needs. And God has given you to them to help fill those. Your children need to have a good hot meal. That's true. Your children need to hear the word of Christ. That's true. Your children also need eye contact from dad. Loving words that say loving things. I'm proud of you. I love you. I'm so happy you're here. Words of affirmation to your spouse. You're beautiful. I'm so glad God has given you to me. Real time, real attention, real effort even put into your relationship with your wife and your children. And you mamas, you wives, the same is true. The husband is not just there to have for you to meet physical needs. There are emotional, psychological needs there too. Wives, your husbands need that eye contact. They need to hear those blessed words, I respect you. I'm impressed by you. I love living my life with you. You're a blessing to me. The kids need to hear those words too. I love you. You're a blessing to me. That will give you a happy family. (laughs) It really will. Doesn't it just sound wonderful? How good is God that even in this fallen world, he would give us his most treasured possessions? People. People to love. People to share our lives with. People to serve. Relationships, yes, that are hard and messy and difficult, but relationships that are also blessings and beautiful and enrich our lives. Don't neglect them. Work on your relationship together with open communication and love and honesty. Isn't life in this, even in this fallen world, so good that God would give us his most treasured possession? His son, Jesus Christ crucified on a cross so that God could have you for all eternity. And until the day you get there to be with him, he gives you all these rich blessings, day in and day out, because he loves you. That seems like a pretty good spot to say, Amen. And also a very good transition to your holiday festivities coming up. You now have a long list of reasons to say thank you to your Heavenly Father. Top of the list, Jesus Christ, His Son. Second on the list, all the relationships, the beautiful relationships He's given you in life. 
And of course, third on the list, twice the Lutheran podcast. You guessed it. That's what you could be thankful for as you head to your family to work on those relationships, to enjoy them as you feast together. My friends, the long farewell. I will see you back again. If you miss me too much, just send me an email, podcast at twicethelutheran.org, and I'll say hi right back to you. My friends, love ya. Bye-bye.